Welcome to the Campus Preacher Podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode six, The Gospel is Hate Speech. Once again, it's the All Safe Feet brand bringing us in with the song Sower, and I'd like to thank them for allowing me to use their music on my podcast. And this is already episode six of the Campus Preacher Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. And today we're going to be discussing the gospel is hate speech. And what got me thinking about this was last week, well, every single day of my life, I'm accused in one point or another of hate speech, bigotry, intolerance, xenophobia, homophobia, Islamophobia, some sort of phobia uh, I possess. So almost every single day, um, someone's going to say something to me about uh, what you're saying is hateful or bigoted in some way. And last week, it was kind of funny. I, uh, Wednesday, I think it was, I went over to um, East Los Angeles College, which is one of the largest community colleges in Los Angeles. And I get to the middle of campus and getting ready to preach and set up shop. And I would just walk over to take a look at the campus map to make sure I'm kind of in the center of campus and in the best spot to preach. And as I'm looking at the uh, map, there's a star with where I am. And I'm like, all right, yeah, here's the library. Here's the student union. I think this place makes the most sense. But as I'm looking at the map, I see on the way far end of the map that uh, uh, area is marked off. It says free speech area. And as I was looking at it, uh, I was like, you got to be kidding me. So I walked down to where the free speech area is. And the free speech area is between uh, parking garage and the football stadium. And so basically they're like, yeah, say whatever you want, just not really where anybody is. And so I didn't feel like challenging it someday. Maybe I'll go back there and try to push the issue and force the issue and try to get the school to open up the campus a bit more. Uh, but I didn't feel like dealing with it that day. So I go running over to another campus um, that wasn't too far away. And I begin to preach. And as soon as I start speaking, a lady comes out and says, hey, you need to get a permit to do this. So I fill out the permit. It's pretty easy, not that big of a deal. Start preaching again. Next thing I know, a pretty good crowd gathers, maybe 60 people. And before long, it was probably 30, 40 minutes later, the lady who told me I needed the permit comes back out with a whiteboard. She puts the whiteboard down. She turns around and begins to explain to the students uh, that my speech is triggering and dangerous and all these other things and no one has to stand there and listen to me but and that's what I always get but he's allowed to be here and so kind of in the old disappointed fashion like we can't stop him from being on campus so she gives up she finishes up and she walks away and as she walks away I walk around to see what the uh, whiteboard said and uh, if you go to my Instagram campus preacher you can see the 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 a pick of the the board she wrote and it's kind of funny because she wrote trigger warning on on a whiteboard and put it out in front of my talk so everybody would know as they approach that uh, they might get triggered and it's kind of funny because if you look at it, it looks like tigger more of a tigger warning uh, than trigger warning and uh, I, I end up asking the students it's like all right can anybody name anything I've said today uh, specifically that's triggering and most were pretty quiet and finally a girl woman chimes in with uh well you said rape and that kind of gets to me and I was like well if you're going to discuss me too and you're going to discuss a rape culture on a college campus you kind of have to use that term and she kind of conceded pretty quickly and then nobody else had anything else to offer up and so I end up explaining that I believe things like trigger warnings and uh, hate speech and all that sort of stuff is basically a means to marginalize those with whose speech that you disagree with. And surprisingly, most students there that day 
seem to agree with me. Um, but nonetheless, every day on a college campus, at some point, I'm going to be accused of something along those lines. And uh, there's a Christian apologist named Cornelius Van Til, who's now deceased, but he's been pretty influential on my thinking. And one of the things that he points out that I think is uh, pretty helpful, um, I'm not sure if it's 100% accurate in every way, but it's actually pretty helpful, is the idea of uh, the believer and the non-believer becoming epistemologically self-conscious. Uh, I'm self-conscious of using that because it sounds really fancy, but it's actually a helpful thing. So uh, the idea of epistemology is just basically uh, the way you justify what it is that you you think you know. Um, so if someone asks you why you believe in God, your theory of knowledge of how you have arrived there would be your epistemology, um, which would include revelation. You know, when you say, oh, well, I saw him do it, your, your justification for why you know that they did it, you, you saw somebody do it. Or your geometry, you'd kind of do, you'd kind of use logic. So, so epistemology is just the kind of your theory of knowing. And what Van Til says, we need to become epistemologically self-conscious. We have to really think through the implications of why we believe what we believe and begin to live that out consistently. So, for example, if you ask the average American what type of government we should have, the average American is going to say that we should have a democracy. But if you ask them why democracy, they'll maybe roll out some platitudes such as, you know, equality and maybe something about justice. But I don't think the average American has really thought through why democracy is the best form of government that's needed. But if you were to become a, a monarchist here in the United States, you would begin to think through the epistemology, okay, why do I believe in monarchy? And what are the implications of that? And the more consistent you become with the implications of why you believe in monarchy versus democracy, there's going to be a bigger gap between the monarchists and the Democrat. Similarly, there is a giant gap as we become epistemologically self-conscious between the unbeliever and the believer. So as our, as our culture becomes more post-Christian and all that sort of stuff, the unbeliever is actually going to become more epistemologically self-conscious with that position, and there's going to be a growing antithesis between the believer and the unbeliever. So 60 years ago, um, you know, everybody may be able to get along on some similar ideas of basic right and wrong and good and evil. And nowadays, all those things are radically different. So we're not as quick to be on the same page as the unbeliever. And so as that happens, what's, what that's going to look like as we disagree with the unbeliever is they're going to accuse us of hate. Uh, they're going to accuse us of bigotry. They're going to be accusing us of being judgmental and those sorts of things. So if you think back in Genesis chapter 19, when Lot is in Sodom, and the men are groping at the door, and he tells them, don't do this thing. Uh, they say, "Who? you know, he came here to sojourn amongst us, and now he wants to judge us. And then in Exodus chapter 2, I believe it is, uh, Moses saves his countrymen from being attacked by the Egyptian, and they say, oh, who made you prince and king over us? And so anytime that evil, we confront evil, we're going to be asked about judging in some regard. And even Jesus himself in John chapter 7 says, the world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. And so why was Jesus crucified? Um, you know, it's, you know, obviously in one sense you can say, well, it was a predetermined plan by God, but there's also very real practical reasons why he, he was crucified, and that includes this fact that he testified what the world does was evil. And when he did that, that was met with opposition and hatred and resistance, and they end up saying that Jesus is demon-possessed. They said that he uh, was a drunk and a glutton. They said that he was uh, insane. I believe his own family even said that he was uh, crazy. So 
we should not expect something radically different to be happening to us. And so when you're accused of hate speech, how do you respond? Um, to kind of give you, I think, an illustration of at least how I seek to uh, kind of neutralize uh, discussion, um, I'm, I'm kind of combining two stories because a very believe it or not, a lot of my days are kind of similar. We interact on a lot of the same topics. And so I'm preaching at James Madison University in Virginia one time. I'm also uh, preaching at a campus in Washington. And on both campuses, I was being accused of Islamophobia. Pretty common charge. The minute I say I don't believe Islam is true, I'm accused of Islamophobia. And at James Madison, I thought it was pretty funny because I asked them the definition of Islamophobia. And I remember the secular students saying, uh, you're saying Islam's wrong. You're saying Islam's wrong. I was like, so if the definition of Islamophobia is saying Islam's wrong, all of you atheists, agnostics, and secularists, by your own definition, are Islamophobes. I just remember them going, no, we're not. No, we're not. It's like, yes, you are. If an Islamophobe is anyone who thinks Islam's wrong, atheists, agnostics, and secularists believe Islam's wrong, therefore, they're Islamophobes. And they really don't want to live out the implications of that, but... Over in uh, Washington, uh, some Muslims were really playing up as well. Once the secular students accused me of Islamophobia, the Muslims were willing to chalk it up and play it up, and people were kind of in agreement that I was an Islamophobe. And so when I asked for the definition, and that's one of the things you have to do whenever anybody accuses you of being judgmental, accuses you of being uh, you know, bigoted or intolerant, just always ask, well, what particularly? And then you can start to have a discussion and get it away from just kind of the vague accusations where I think they want to keep it because they want to make it look like your character, There's something wrong with your character, not the actual argument. And so I asked the uh, Muslims what particularly it is. And they're like, oh, well, you're saying that we're wrong. And so what I did, I had a Quran with me. I went through uh, about five or six different things in the Quran. I'm saying, well, the Quran says this, I teach this, am I wrong? And they were like, yes this and this. Yeah, you're wrong. Yes, this and this. Yes, you're wrong. So after five or six of those, I finish up and just say, all right, now if I'm wrong on all these, do you hate me? And they're just like, oh, well, no, no. And I was like, all right, so it's possible that you guys can think I'm wrong on all these things and not hate me. Yes. Is it possible that I can think you're wrong on quite a few things and not hate you? And they're like, I guess so. They, they had a, they kind of saw the logic and they had to concede the point. And so you know, they didn't become believers or anything like that, but at the very least, in that discussion, I was able to neutralize the field of just bringing out this idea that, like, all right, I'm an Islamophobe, and how do you get around that accusation? And now, once we reach the point where, like, oh, I guess so, then I just kind of pushed. Now, the question we need to be asking ourselves and the debate we need to have is which one's true, and more often than not, that's not the discussion they want to have. And even that day, I don't remember us really progressing into a sub substantive discussion over Christianity and Islam. And so we have to feel comfortable as we go out and evangelize to be hit with the labels. And what we have to learn to do is kind of push back through the labels. And one of the things you'll find oftentimes, um, and for me, it's my, I think my conversations are obviously going to be different because I'm working with a crowd more often than not. So if I have accusations, I have other people listening in. If you're sitting at a dinner table with somebody and you're accused of these things, you don't necessarily have other people uh, sitting in. And the reason I mention that is because uh, kind of two stories kind of quickly um, that happened over the past week in evangelizing. It's kind of fascinating when you consider kind of race in America and whatever is going on with all of uh, – 
all of that and how people think about it. Last week, I'm preaching at uh, a Cal State University, and a young black man starts asking me questions. And one of the things he first asked me was, how many laws are there? I say, uh, no, they, the rabbis say there's 613. Um, and then he ends up, as we're discussing a little bit more, he ends up asking, do you believe that God hates? And I said, yes. And at that point, you know, the crowd that was there was unimpressed with my answer, but he was kind of happy. And so I went through Psalm 5.5, in Psalm 11, 5, where it talks about God's hatred, and also Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated. And when I quoted that verse, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, he's like, all right, who's Esau? And I said, well, it's the Edomites. And he goes, well, who's the Edomites today? And I said, I know where you're going with this. And I was like, you're asking me loaded questions. He's like, no, no, I'm not. I'm just asking you questions, man. I'm just trying to figure these things out. And uh, really, what? so when, in general, if you're asked about who the Edomites are, and it's a black guy, more often than not, they're kind of influenced by Hebrew Israelite or black Israelite uh, thinking and theology. And so when they are asking you who the Edomites are, they want the Edomites to be the black or the, to be the white man. And that's what I've kind of discovered in my interaction with them in New York City on uh, several different occasions. And so he's asking me all these questions. And finally, you know, the, the crowd eventually dies out. And he and I are able to have a good one-on-one discussion uh, for about an hour. And it was really fascinating because um, I, I can't remember exactly language that he used. I ended up saying black coffee Christianity. He's like, yeah, you're, you're willing to, you know, you're willing to say truthful things that so many other people are not willing to, uh, talk about. And so for example, you know, the Edomites, who are the Edomites and why would God destroy them to be willing to discuss that and have that conversation to him was a good thing that he does not see much coming from American evangelicals, but he does see the Hebrew Israelites tapping into those things. So one of the things I often seen as people, kind of dabble in cults. Inevitably what the cult does is find something that the church is not addressing, and they seek to exploit that and accent that and say, see, no one believes this. And so God hates. Let's go to the evangelical, ask them that. And they're like, oh, no, God doesn't. And then they're like, see, we got Bible verses. And then they're like, see, yeah, they must be corrupt. And so we want to be able to preach the whole counsel of God First and foremost, just to be faithful to God of what He has revealed, um, but also it is you know the truth is the means of preventing error. And so many times people get caught up in error because uh, other you know the church is just ignoring things. And especially when I'm out here in California, I'm always bumping into some cult on campus that is tapping into two or three verses that are just never talked about, and they try to exploit it for all of its worth. And What's also kind of interesting to me last week, interacting with the um, African-American man that was attracted to the black Israelites. So today I'm preaching on campus and a young white guy who's basically a nationalist or a racist in some regard uh, started peppering me with questions. And one of the things that was kind of interesting, so we're having a discussion on the sexual revolution and I wasn't saying anybody was behind it, but he starts asking me, yeah, who was behind it? Who's, Who's driving the sexual revolution? And I was like, uh, it took me a second, and I said, do you want my answer to be the Jews? And uh, he didn't really, he was kind of a little bit taken aback. I was like, you know, are you asking about the Jewish question? And so if you've come across any uh, kind of alt-right people, you'll discover kind of the bizarre lurking behind the scenes oftentimes are the Jews. And so this young man was asking these questions, and it was pretty evident that, you know, he's driving at basic racist thinking. 
And but he hung out all day. He was willing to ask questions. And what was really fascinating to me is he really wanted to defend the Roman Empire and how Christianity collapsing the Roman Empire was the beginning of the end of Western civilization because Christianity is weak and it's given us our decadent culture and society that we have today. And uh, he basically wanted to return to uh, pagan gods and all that sort of stuff because it was a much better way to live. And so it was kind of fascinating. Uh, from several fronts, just because you don't meet too many people who have kind of thought about going that angle. And so here's here you have a guy on a college campus. At the end of the day, I finish up, and there's maybe eight or nine people kind of gathered around. And I'm just asking them, you know, kind of what are your views and what are you thinking? He's like, well, I'm not on a college campus. I'm not really free to express myself without being rejected. And he's like, so I don't want to give too many specifics. Um, but the basic idea is – uh, yeah, he's a racist and he's a pagan and he basically wants to return. And what's fascinating is he wants to return to his gods. And it's kind of the flip side of the black Israelites. So the Israelites want to return, you know, they at least want to be close to the Bible, I suppose, with the Israelites. Um, but basically, you know, there's some sort of power for them by going to, in their racial identity, in going to God. And similarly, for this young man, returning to kind of pagan gods uh, empowers the white man and kind of gives them power and energy. And I just thought it was kind of fascinating to see in one week uh, the two sides of kind of the same pagan ideology identification um, in the ways that that would have, opposed to the way that the gospel would lay it out of worshiping the true God um, from people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So it's kind of a fascinating discussion to be able to have. And one of the things I enjoy about what I do is I get to have those conversations with two young men who may not have had that conversation with anybody else. Who knows what the Lord would have done? Um, but I'm able to step into that space, have that conversation, basically because I publicly preached. And oftentimes, the people who are on the periphery of society are going to want to interact with me just because they th think I'm also on the periphery of society. So it may not always be the best thing, but... Uh, or at least the perspective may not, but I'm able to have a conversation with a bunch of people that would not step foot into our church. And one of the good things, if you start to evangelize and you start to get into discussions with more people, what you'll find is you'll find yourself with tons of fascinating conversations with a bunch of diverse people from all over the place with all sorts of wacky beliefs, and perhaps by the grace of God, you'll be used uh, to bring them into the kingdom. And so whenever I'm on campus, inevitably I get asked, why are you out here? And I always think of Acts chapter 16 um, with Lydia, and it says that God opened Lydia's heart to Paul's message. So I almost appeal to that almost every week. And kind of in closing, there was a, uh, a week ago, kind of tied into all this, a week ago, a friend of mine posted on Facebook just kind of the nature when I was discussing kind of the 47% are uh, think it's wrong to convert people. Another 44% will not share the gospel. They think it will strain relationships. Um, a friend commented that we need to be in, uh, basically, we, we need to share stories of one another and of evangelism and success in evangelism, because as we're doing that, it'll embolden us and encourage us uh, to do it more. And I think that's absolutely true. And so that's why I wanted to talk about those two stories with uh, two young men who are pretty diverse uh, perspectives who are at least open to the gospel. Then tomorrow night, I'm having a meeting a young man I met today for some coffee to discuss things further. So step out in faith, step out in some boldness, and see what the Lord uh, may do. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Campus Preacher Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, demands, re rebukes, exhortations, you can uh, reach out to me on Twitter at Campus Evangel, or you can send me a message at Keith at CampusPreacher.com. And if there's anything you'd like me to discuss, any questions, 
thoughts, comments, and all that sort of stuff that you think might be helpful towards you, feel free to reach out to me and I'll seek to address it in a future podcast. Thank you for listening. Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom.